0: I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. With the coronavirus spreading and me sick with something, here's the episode six lineup. First, winter surfing and the coronavirus testing kits. Second, things high school boys say in class. Third, Vice Magazine's the last man on earth without a cell phone. Fourth, when our school district brings in a tech speaker from Apple. Fifth, geeking out on the coronavirus, the Spanish flu, and other obscure methods of dying. And finally, a dedication and a message from Jill at the CDC. A few days ago, I went winter surfing with my friend Elton, and I thought I was going to be dealing with the same two issues I always deal with when I go surfing. Number one, I'm not that great of a surfer. Number two, I'm kind of deathly afraid of sharks. To give you a sense of how afraid of sharks I am, it's not just uh, that I'm afraid of them as I'm paddling to a reef or a sandbar. It's not just that while I'm paddling over the well, I think of sharks underneath me coming up to hit me from below. But also, I'm afraid of sharks when, say, I swim across a river that's pretty deep. Or, um, I remember the first time I swam across Dark Lake in Central Oregon with my best friend's older sister. And the whole time I kept thinking about all the sharks swimming underneath me in the lake water. So... Elton and I drive out to the coast, and for this winter surfing sesh, it's really, really bright sunny, pretty cold, 33 degrees that morning at the coast at Florence, Oregon, so sunny and cold, windy, the waves are only surf-casted at four to seven feet, and there's a lot of good, consistent six-foot waves, which is perfect for me because I'm not a great surfer, I don't need 12-foot waves or anything like that. And we struggle into our wetsuits, or he gets into his wetsuit and I struggle into mine. And then we wax our boards and we head out. I'm surfing on a seven foot six board that's fairly stable, but I'm still paddling kind of badly because I'm not a great paddler. And we're using the riptide along the jetty. And as I'm paddling out, I'm kind of pinpointing between seals as they pop their heads up out of the water. And they're really cute because seals look like puppies, and I love dogs, obviously. So I'm talking to the seals as I'm paddling past them, but I'm also thinking that seals are great white sharks' favorite food. And I read that there's moderate great white shark danger where we're surfing today because I look things like that up because I'm a little bit afraid. And I'm going between these seals, and I'm talking to a seal on my left, and then I see this really cute gray face, spotted face seal to my right. <laughs> and he's kind of over this little deep well of water along the jetty, and the water's dark there and opaque, and suddenly the seal just gets snatched, like, just devoured from below, like, whoo. and I'm like, ah, you know, staring and looking for the blood pool and wondering what I look like to that same shark from below, and I'm, Kind of panicking a little bit. I'd like to say that I remained calm, but I did not remain calm. I thought about how I could get all of my arms and legs up on this tiny little seven foot six board that's not very wide. My shoulders are wider than it is. And I'm like kind of stressing out a little bit. And then all of a sudden the seal's face pops up about 40 feet away. And I realized that it didn't get eaten at all. It just ducked under really fast in a manner that made me think that it was getting eaten alive so I asked him to not do that again and I paddled left out of the riptide in between the sets and then my friend Elton he says you know we're kind of in between if we go out a little further we can surf a little bigger waves and if we come in a little bit we can surf more consistent sets but right here there's almost nothing and then all of a sudden this gorgeous six foot rogue wave came between the sets where it shouldn't even have been And it just started to break to my left and I kicked and paddled and I caught the wave and I popped up and I surfed in and to the right and all the way over the sandbar and then I jumped off when I was in a little bit shallower water. And Elton paddled into me and he was like, dude, that was awesome. You just got the only wave that you could have caught right there. And I wanted to say it was because I was a great surfer, but really I was incredibly motivated by fear at that moment. And I was thinking right there in the in between, we were where sharks were, we were where seals were, and I was about to get eaten. So maybe it seemed like it was gonna be one of those good surfing days where I actually can kinda surf okay, except now I was in the white water, and I surfed a long, long breaking wave. Where I was just kinda washing in that chop, <clears throat> kinda sliding along. Got near the beach, paddled out once again. And by the third wave, I could barely paddle. I just thought, man, I'm out of shape. And then I caught a fourth wave, but I mean, I literally could barely stand up. I went to push, and I had no pop in my body. I kind of drug my feet up on the board, stood for a few seconds, and then just sort of slumped over. (laughs) And then I was... Too close to shore to catch anything good, and I was too tired to paddle out. So I just kind of rode my surfboard like a boogie board in, paddled in the rest of the way, hopped off, and trudged up onto the beach to play with Elton's dog and to kind of drop my head in shame. And Elton came in and was like, "Dude, you want to go another lap, run the rip all the way out?" And I just said, "No, man, I don't. I don't think I can." I'm just destroyed. I don't know what's up. I guess I'm just in horrible, horrible shape. So I hung out in on the beach, and I started a fire. And I pet his dog's head and just sat there and watched him surf for a while. It was a beautiful day, but I just felt trashed. After only one hour out, maybe. Maybe not even that much. And then we drove back to Eugene, And I fell asleep sitting up in the car. I was just a mess. I was like, man, maybe I just didn't get enough sleep this week or something like that. Then I got home. And I went straight to bed and took a nap. And then I woke up and I was all sweaty. I was like, wow. I'm doing badly today. (laughs) I took some Advil. Hung out with Jenny and Rue. And then all of a sudden, I was really sick. I mean... Kind of sketchy sick, like sicker than I've been in years. And I told Jenny, and she was like, You gotta go to urgent care. You gotta get tested. Everybody's kind of freaking out about coronavirus. We gotta know if you've got it, right? So I go there, and they immediately put a mask on me, and they take me to the back, and they check me for regular flu because it's obvious I got something like that, and it comes back negative. And then the doctor comes in and he's like, well, you've got all the symptoms of COVID-19, but we can't test you for it. I said, okay, well, I'm a school teacher, so I kind of need to know if like I exposed a bunch of people. And he said, well, you got, <clears throat> you got the dry cough and you got the fever, like low-grade fever. And obviously, you don't look good. You probably got chills and all that. But we're only testing people in our county. they've traveled to China or Italy recently, or if they've been in close contact with someone who's already been diagnosed with COVID-19. And I said, well, you know, like, if you understand epidemiology, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because then it's spreading from all these untested people to all these other untested people. And he said, yeah, I know, but Somebody as young and as strong as you, as healthy as you, we just can't afford to waste a test. So you just got to go home, ride it out, kind of self-quarantine, and that's that. And I said, well, that just means that we've got thousands of people in our state who are, uh, you know, probably infected, but they're young, they're strong. And he said, yeah, that's the problem with the system. That's what we've got going on in our country right now. And I was like, oh, we should have made way more tests. He said, yeah, definitely. I said, okay, well, can I get antivirals or something like that so I can get over it quicker? And he said, actually, we're completely out of antivirals in our entire county right now. And supposedly the federal government is making sure that we make more, but at this point, looks like we're not going to have any for a long time. I was like, oh, all right. COVID-19 is going to get really bad in the U.S. before it gets better. With school shut down and no students around, I thought I'd speak my little ode to high school boys and the wonderful things they say sometimes. For example, recently, a couple weeks ago, this freshman boy walked up to the front of the class, and loudly, because freshman boys say these things loudly, he announced that he was going to the bathroom. So he goes up to the little sign-out sheet, the little clipboard that our school requires, and he says, I'm going to go take a douche. And I said, oh man, um, leaned in close to him, and I was like, that doesn't mean what you think it means. And he said, no, I'm going a douche now. And kind of looked and smiled at the class. And I was like, um, you might want to reword that, buddy. Um, I, just think about it. Also, the other day, uh, about a week and a half ago, I was with my outdoor program. And two high school boys were rock climbing next to me. One was climbing and one was playing and the climber was just starting his climb. And he said, man, I was so sick this morning that when I got up, I blew my nose. And not only was the snot the color of meat, but it also had the same texture as meat And the other high school boy, the one that was belaying him, he was like, oh man, you should have chopped up some vegetables and refried that or cooked it on the barbecue and eaten it back up to get all your nutrients back. But then sometimes uh, they aren't saying things to each other. For example, a few years ago, I had a freshman named Shane. He was kind of a funny kid, you know. And this was at the time when my brother, Koop Hofmeister, was at his most famous as a professional snowboarder. He was in lots of videos and, you know, he was followed online. And multiple times in bars, I had signed autographs as him when somebody came up to me and was like, Yo, Coop, I love your writing. Can you sign my napkin? Or one time this guy was like, Can you sign my shirt? You know, and they're drunk and I felt bad for them. So I was like, yeah, no problem, dude. I'm a sick rider. And I just signed Coop Hoffmeister right on the shirt. So anyway, this was kind of at Coop's height of fame. And this freshman boy, Shane, he raises his hand. And he's like, uh, yeah, Mr. Hoffmeister, um, so your brother's a professional snowboarder, right? And I was like, yeah, Shane, yeah, he is. Um, I pointed to, uh, the skull Candy poster on my wall that has my brother, you know, sliding uh, on the side of a wall two stories up at a uh, snowboarding resort in Argentina, right? Shane looks at the poster and he looks at me and he goes, so your brother's a professional snowboarder and you're a high school English teacher. And I was like, yep, that, that, that's true, Shane. And Shane says... I don't mean this um in any bad way or anything, but like, what happened to you? I've never owned a cell phone, and in 2013 that freaked people out. So Vice Magazine asked me if I would write an article about it, and I wrote, an article titled, Confessions of the Last Man on Earth Without a Cell Phone. But that was seven years ago. In 2018, me not owning a cell phone freaked people out even more. So I wrote an update. But with everything that has to do with technology, even the updated 2018 article that I'm about to read to you is already outdated. So this is Confessions of the Last Man on Earth Without a Cell Phone. First published in Vice. I've been part of a few fads in my lifetime. Wearing Jordans, sleeping in a bed, reading Harry Potter. I'm writing this on a MacBook Pro. I've driven a convertible Jeep in the sun. And I've eaten kettle corn out of a microwaved bag. I've blogged. I've retweeted. I've worked 50 or more hours a week for months on end. So in many ways, I'm an average 41-year-old U.S. citizen, except for one thing. I've never owned a cell phone. I know I'm supposed to be embarrassed, or at least that's what I think I'm supposed to be. People are embarrassed for me. My little sister introduced me at a party this past year by saying, this is my brother Pete. He doesn't own a cell phone. Apparently, this is key information during an introduction to a stranger. And last week, a woman on the street asked to borrow my phone for a minute when I said, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, I don't own one. She looked horrified. She said, are you okay? Am I okay? Well, honestly, I'm not sure. Sometimes I feel like holding Caulfield in his scene with the prostitute. I know that I'm supposed to have an orgasm when you tell me about Boeing's security-oriented black phone, but so far I'm not even turned on. Wait, you say it has Silent Circle encrypted calling client? Spider Oak online storage and it self-destructs if it's tampered with? (laughs) Why didn't you tell me all of that in the first place? When I watch an advertisement wherein people argue about 4G, I think to myself, is there a 5G or a 6G? Is 6G what CIA or NSA spies are secretly using right now? Was there a 4F before the 4G or a 3G before a 4G? What about a 3.5F? I don't know how cell phone math works. And is 3D related to that whole G thing or something else? Because I've seen some pretty stupid ads on the topic of 3D phones and I'm guessing that those two could be related. When I start spacing off and thinking like this, Pretty soon I'm considering the use of the alphabet to sell products and the alphabet's limitations, only 26 letters, but how numbers are infinite even when negative, and then I remember the fact that there are infinite numbers between 3 and 4. I start to think about simple infinities and how Even though the world spins and there's day and night and seasons and shifting magnetic poles, there is no upside down in the universe, just one big universe in every direction. And then I have to go drink a glass of water in the kitchen over the sink while staring out the window for a while because distance is relative, you know? With cell phones, I'm confused in lots of ways. Because I've never texted, I'm what people call a text-speak moron. I don't know what LMFAO stands for, or IMO. And the numbers thing comes in here, too. For example, I just learned that less than three doesn't equal less than three. I kept wondering why people on the internet were commenting, I love your singing less than three, or you look so hot in that outfit less than three. I wondered why not more than 100, or at least more than nine. (laughs) One of my friends is in a new relationship, and he's texting all the time. I keep worrying about his neck. He hunches a lot right now, and his neck is in bad shape. He's always looking down at that tiny screen in his hand. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to say that he's always looking down at that huge 4.7-inch ammo LED plus display screen in his hands. I forgot how huge 4.7 inches is, that 4.7 inches in technology is enormous. Actually, when I see an advertisement for 4.7 inches, I think about how when I was in college, my roommate who had 4.7 inches in his hands was seriously embarrassed and hoped that nobody would ever find out about his little secret. My sister has the iPhone X. It has Touch ID that sometimes doesn't work. Also, she talks to her phone a lot. Find Red Robin. I look up at the sky, but she means a restaurant. She says, I've gotten 81 apps for free. Oh, I say, and just to annoy her, even though I know exactly what she's bragging about, I say, you can't even eat 81 apps, can you? One of my friends said recently, it'd be great to live under a rock like you. But I know she didn't mean it. People don't want to be me. Living without a cell phone is dangerous. My friends and family are always saying, but what if you're in trouble? I say, what kind of trouble? They say, like, if you're lost in the woods and you need help. How would a cell phone help me if I were lost in the woods and needed help? GPS, Pete. Phone type GPS now. Oh, right, I say GPS. GPS. But why would I be lost in the woods in the first place? Then they shake their heads. Me not owning a cell phone annoys them. I obviously don't understand what's important in this life. I've had no fewer than seven people offer to put me on their plans. Like a drug dealer in a terrible John Hughes 80s movie, they all say the same thing. I can just start you for free, man. You'd be part of my family. So I get into character and say, no thanks, man, I'm just going to stay straight. In David Sedaris's Remembering My Childhood on the Continent of Africa, Sedaris's partner Hugh says that while he was living in Ethiopia as a kid, he saw the movie with the talking Volkswagen, and afterward he discovered a dead man hanging from a telephone pole in the theater parking lot. When he tried to explain later how he felt about seeing the body swinging from the rope, his friend stopped him and said, You saw a movie about the talking car? That's how it is with me not owning a cell phone. I say, My friend crashed his bike next to me the other day and he was bleeding everywhere. Out of his nose and forehead and I was trying to borrow a cell phone from a passerby to call for help because I don't have one and my friend was completely knocked out and then he started convulsing on the ground and I thought he was going to die and wait, 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 the listener stops me. Hold on now. You really don't have a cell phone? Why not? I talked to a person on the street yesterday who held a sign that read, no food, no money. Anything helps. He had a huge touchscreen cell phone on his hip and a belt holder. Beyond the fashion faux pas, I wondered about him begging for food while paying a monthly cell phone bill. I wondered who told him it was necessary to own that phone. I'm all for America, land of the free, and I'm no better than anyone else. But does freedom mean that everyone is required to pay a ton of money to hold a portable phone? On the other hand, I've heard that some hipsters in Portland are going back to old school flip phones. That's like buying one of Tentacion's songs and saying that he's still pretty obscure, like reclaiming Biggie or Tupac as a couple of artists nobody's ever heard of. A young man named Ashley, who's wearing horn rim glasses, a scarf, and a Che Guevara hat, says to me, my phone has no internet capability and it only costs 19.99. He's sort of breathless as he explains this to me. "Wow," I say, "that's great." He holds the phone between us and closes his eyes like he might cry. "You can't do anything on this," he says. "Just call and text and take pictures." I nod and say, "Wow, again. That's crazy." Then I wonder, what would going back to the old school look like for me? I have to admit, I'm not the last man on earth without a cell phone. There's one 97-year-old man in Carthage, South Dakota, who's hard of hearing, and he didn't understand his grandchildren when they said, This is important, Grandpa. You need a cell phone so you can call for help when you're lost in the woods. My friend and I were talking about Google Glass yesterday. He's naturally pro-glass, still. And I'm naturally con-glass. He said, Are you afraid that we're flying too close to the sun, Pete? No, I said. I'm afraid that we're digging too close to the already cracked sewage pipe. Oh, Pete, he said. He, you just don't under. But then he stopped talking. And he put one finger up in the air before dropping his head, the universal sign that a person has received a text message. He gets very quiet like he's praying. And I get very quiet to respect his moment of religious devotion. I'm not a believer myself, but I don't want to interrupt him in this, in his house of worship, because to interrupt him would be rude. As long as I'm ranting about my hatred of technology and exposing myself as a Luddite, I may as well read a poem I wrote a couple weeks ago after the school district brought in a tech speaker from Apple so he could spread propaganda, I mean, talk to us about opportunities educationally. And here's my poem. I was ranting about how the school district brought in a tech expert, an Apple educator, a dynamic speaker paid a lot of money to come speak to us, started by asking us to name our favorite technologies, audience members calling out new apps and video games I'd never heard of. I yelled, the toilet, because it is my favorite technology. I love excrement. Not sitting in a chamber pot under my bed until I walk over and dump it out the window onto the street below. Or, to be more precise, composting toilets are a miracle of science. The smell of sawdust, and sawdust only, in a sun-warmed outhouse. Amazing. Amazing. But this speaker wasn't interested in useful, or what he called, quote-unquote, basic technologies. He didn't understand the truth that he is actually somewhere in the middle of all history, and that in only 200 years, this current time period we're living in will look cute or quaint, and humans will tell stories about all the stupid things people said or believed at the beginning of the 21st century. Along with an anecdote, he told us about light switches coming to New York hotels in 1926, which was wrong by 40 years. This tech expert, tech educator, told us that Gutenberg invented the printing press as if the printing press and movable type were a Western thing first, as if printing presses hadn't already existed for almost 600 years in China. But this expert had no idea that all of his claims were so American, so simplified, and sadly incorrect. As people say, we are a nation of anti-intellectualism, and this man is a product who in turn pushes products. We don't teach our children contextual learning, because it takes too much time to So I imagine this speaker as a child staring at his TV in wonder. Is it too harsh to say that we consume and consume and consume until we die? But there were Hitler-like speech quotes too in this presentation with the requisite yelling at the end. We have evolved beautifully. We are living with human efficiency that has never been equaled. Or this one. Most Futurians see this as a golden age of change. I did like that last slant rhyme he included. It made me think of all the poems that our revered speaker had never read. He said he wanted us to, quote, accept the truth and not think about ethics. Ooh, the blue pill bask in the illusion to close our eyes and enter the common room of the cultural cult. Instead, I think of the Navajo Usabio and Willa Cather's death comes for the archbishop, Usabio speaking in the late 19th century, when arrogant men also thought that they were at the cutting edge of history. The Navajo replies, Men travel faster now but I do not know if they go to better things. The coronavirus, COVID-19, or as I call it, La infermeradita coronita Porque we love it It's what we're all passionately talking about right now. And since this is the focus of our discussions, our phone calls, our texts, and our social media hashtags of red projections and we can reasonably expect that, according to the C D C most of the US population will be exposed to La Coronita in the next three months. If one-third of the U.S. population contracts the virus, a reasonable expectation, what will be the outcome? Well, here's where it gets interesting. Because people like me go to urgent care facilities and are told that we have all the symptoms but can't be tested because of limited test kits, that means that the total number of people with the virus is much, much higher than what is being reported. But that also means that the death rate is much, much lower than what's being reported. Instead of the 3.4% to 5.2% that's being reported in different regions of the world, the true death rate is much more likely to be 0.5% to 1%. So in the U.S., a more reasonable 1% death rate means that of 120 million contracting citizens, 1.2 million will die. That's a lot of people, and it doesn't feel right to minimize that number, especially since I'm not in the endangered demographics. And when you compare that number to the regular flu, la coronita is a totally different animal. For example, we have full flu statistics from the 2017-2018 flu season, in which 45 million people in the United States were infected and 61,000 people died. Doing the math, that's a 0.014%, or to compare, one-tenth as deadly as la coronita. Since our new pandemic is ten times as deadly as the regular flu, it makes sense that people are stressing out. So instead of comparing la coronita to the regular flu, let's compare it to the greatest flu epidemic of all time, the Spanish flu The Spanish flu and H1N1 pandemic raced around the world in 1918 and 1919. The world's population at that time was between 1.7 billion and 1.8 billion people. To figure out a case fatality rate, or CFR, researchers take the total number of deaths divided by the total number of recorded cases. In 1918 and 1919, 500 million people were infected with the Spanish flu, and between 50 million and 100 million people died. The CDC reports this as a 2.4% CFR, as reported in its famous 2006 study. But Ferris Jaber of Wired Magazine recently researched this topic and reported on the very, very obvious error in that stated CFR. He contacted the CDC, JAMA, and the New York Times, since the CDC's numbers had been repeated in popular media, and pointed out that 50 to 100 million of 500 million is actually, mathematically, a CFR of 10 to 20 percent. Also, if we take into account hidden cases of up to 100 million more people with the virus, and a middle death number of 75 million, the CFR possible is 12.5 percent. Furthermore, if the entire world's population in 1918 was 1.8 billion and every single person contracted the virus, then 75 million people died, that's a CFR of 4.2%. As Jabeter wrote in his Wired article, to make 50 million deaths compatible with a 2.5% CFR would require at least 2 billion infections, more than the number of people that existed at that time. So the reported confirmed fatality rate by the CDC isn't possible even if every single person on earth contracted the Spanish flu in 1918 and 1919, which they did not. No disease is that infectious. No disease in all of history has ever been that infectious. So the CDC is intentionally reporting an inaccurate CFR and has been for many, many years. Or to put it another way, the CDC has been intentionally lying to the American people forever. In 102 years, we still haven't been told the truth about the preeminent flu pandemic in modern history. And when considering our current coronita situation, does anyone truly believe that the scientists at the World Health Organization and the CDC are checking Twitter to decide how they recommend quarantines, closures, and social distancing? Either we're overreacting or... Or we're underreacting? Or is there something that we're not being told about this virus? I mean, for 102 years, we've been told to lie about the Spanish flu. So what are we not being told about our little coronita right now? Or should we just trust the CDC? They seem pretty upstanding. Or should we trust FEMA? FEMA always responds well to emergencies, right? Right? Or, on the other side of the argument, going with the idea that we're all overreacting and freaking about out about something that's going to kill very, very few of us. Let's look at other strange ways to die in our country. For example, I researched and found these. 63 U.S. citizens die in lawnmower accidents each year. 97 people per year die falling from trees in the U.S. Or... This is much, much more deadly. 144 people in this country die from constipation each year. Constipation kills people. More deadly still, 279 people die each year from quote-unquote contact with agricultural machinery. But, and this is pretty scary, 680 people in the U.S. die each year from accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed. A weird outcome for some people's kinks, right? And speaking of beds, 692 people die in the U.S. each year in falls from beds. So, dear people, your bedrooms are pretty dangerous. Be careful when you go in them. Finally, getting back to my greatest fear, a fear of sharks. On average, Seven people in the U.S. are attacked each year by sharks, but only one person every two years is actually killed by a shark in the United States. So, 0.5 people per year are killed by sharks, making shark attack deaths more than four times less likely than being killed by a vending machine. That's right. Vending machines kill 2.18 U.S. citizens per year. So when I'm paddling out, between swells, cruising among the seals, and looking over my shoulder for a great white shark, because I understand statistics, I should be looking over my shoulder and keeping an eye out for vending machines. This episode is dedicated to Luke Mazziotti, fly fisherman, night swimmer, and friend extraordinaire. And finally, I was talking to Lane County Health the other day, and they redirected me on the phone to Jill at the CDC. And she recommended, so I thought I'd pass it on to all of you, that in this time of self-quarantine, and social distancing, possibly the best thing you could do is listen and subscribe to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my...